Well, welcome to the New Romantics. This is our second episode and to introduce ourselves, my name is Sophie Scott and I am a neuroscientist. And I'm Will Eaves and I am, well, I'm, you know, I write, but I suppose I'm a writer, yes. <laughs> I think you're allowed yeah, 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 to call no, yourself a A few writer. novels, a few poems, there we are. And I teach as well. You are okay. literature. I am science, you are literature. Yes. So one of the things that we are trying to do is to communicate across the possibly enormous chasms, possibly across the extremely small gaps that interstitial spaces between neuroscience and art and humanities and science more generally, I guess, and the humanities. And one of the things that we do is we give each other things to read. So we have homework and I get off very lightly on this because <laughs> academic papers can be very long. Well, and so far, so you know, far. what I haven't told you is next week it's Moby Dick. Or <laughs> <laughs> the Old Testament. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll brace myself yeah. for that. Just and read the opening. Yes. It's all you need. <laughs> just, just, just graze it. Can I start by saying why I chose the paper I wanted to send yeah, to you? It'd be interesting. So one of the things that is interesting about this paper, and it's a paper on autobiographical memory, and it's a specific model. It's somebody trying to come up with a sort of theoretical view of what autobiographical memory is. And that's, in academic psychology and neuroscience, we have a very modular approach to memory. We treat different kinds of memories as, as entirely different phenomena. So what's called semantic memory, your knowledge of what things are called and what words mean, that is different from your motor memory for how to ride a bike Mm. or how to walk downstairs. And that that's different again from your episodic memory. And your episodic memory is kind of events in time and place. An aversion, a kind of episodic memory, is your autobiographical memory. And that's you in time and place and the things that happen to you. And this paper is an attempt to synthesise across a lot of different domains that have been interested in sort of the self and memory of the self and try to pull them together into a model and argue about what what an autobiographical memory is. Is it some stored piece of information that you go away and access or is it something more fleeting that you construct? Yeah, is it a construction? I'd be interested in your thoughts about this kind of very modular approach to memory. It seems very obvious to us because yeah. it can go wrong separately. But I suppose one of the things that struck me was that it seemed a very useful way of compartmentalising different kinds of experienced recollection. And I wondered what exactly the relationship of that compartmentalization, that description was to actual neurochemical events. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel I know very little about either, but I liked the descriptive model. I I suppose one of the things that really struck me about it, this is a paper by Conway and Pladle Pierce, is that it has, it divides the idea of the self really into a, a sort of knowledge base, which underlies the construction or the recollection of specific events. And it's quite like something that a philosopher who's who's generally sort of, you know, kind of against cognitive neuroscience, but it's it's remarkably similar to something that John Searle talks about, which is the background. In other words, it's the thing against which specific visual recall or narrative constructions of events 
or thematic developments of a sense of self all operate. You know, and it's not itself the thing that does the representing, but it's the thing that is necessary in order for those other sort of self-representations to take place. Mm. Does that make sense? And what that, the question that that poses for me is sort of what is the system of recognition prior to all these things that allows them to be represented to us as mm. events or as bits of knowledge. So, for example, when Conway and Pierce talk about event-specific knowledge, they use a really, really interesting you know, idea. What's interesting to me is that it presents as an image in the mind and that this is how we really get into often post-traumatic recall. Mm. It's not actually yet a story... It is an image. And they present this as being a sort of a very effective, very bright and sort of dazzling event in the mind to do with some specific event. And it's a bit like the kind of medieval notion of looking at an image in the sort of pre-literate days because you sort of got the whole... The idea of, of the visual sense was that it was the means to apprehension of the world, complete apprehension, not just of the world, but of you know reflections on God and everything else. It was your system of comprehension, really. Yeah. And you got everything at once in mm. sort of eternal presence. And interestingly, although they present the image in the mind as a partial thing, I think actually what they're saying is it's quite global. What I mean by that is that you get all of the event in that image, mm. or it might also be a smell, or it might be something sensory, perceptual, but it, it's somehow all contained in it. Yeah. Whereas general event knowledge, which they think of as being a larger sort of state, sort of, you know, uh, which has things in it that then cue event-specific knowledge, so it's a bit further up the hierarchy, mm. as it were, that actually seems to me to be more partial in a way yeah. because you construct it by going slowly, by making one connection from one thing to another and then building up, as it were, a network of events that form a generality. So I actually think that the general thing is the thing that's in essence partial and event-specific knowledge, it seems to me, could plausibly be global. It's interesting to think of it that way because one of the characteristics about autobiographical events is, of course, you were there. Yeah. So there is a very strong sensory record and that can be, you know, it can contain abstract information about the meaning of what's going on, but it can also just have a very, you know, very powerful... I mean, everybody's probably had the experience of smelling something yeah. and being immediately transported to some time and place yeah. because that was part of that memory. I mean, it's inter- I mean, I think smells really... Oh, smells it's, crazy. It's incredibly crazy. It's very, very interesting. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, I interrupted you say more about No, that. no, no. It, it, I mean, smell does seem to be a... A particularly odd aspect of this in that when we sense the world everything that you sense about the stuff that's out there in the world and also about your body so you know my sensation of where my hands are 
that is all processed going up towards the cortex through this kind of relay station called the thalamus. And there are these sort of, they're called ascending sensory pathways. And also, the same thing happens when you can act on the world, stuff going back out. So there's this really important relay station, getting stuff in, getting stuff out. And it's part of the kind of, it's where the really elaborate sensory processing kicks in. And in humans, the only sense that doesn't seem, there is occasionally arguments that it may there may be some pathways that we haven't spotted yet, or there may be some important route, but there does not seem to be an ascending sensory pathway for smell. It just plugs from the back of your nose mm. into your brain. Mm. And it's incredibly direct. So everything else is being, by the time you've heard my voice, you would not believe the amount of pre-processing that signal has gone through going up to your mm. cortex. And that does not happen to smell. So smell has this very, very odd immediacy, which can make it hard for us to classify. If you want to go into a job where you need to know the names of smells, you need to train for a long while in a way that you didn't have to be trained on colour. At least the basics of colour come with gaining language. So we we don't have very good language around smells normally, and we are not very good at necessarily recognising smells. I used to work in the body shop in the 1980s, the peak body shop, and we had a whole smell display where we had these kind of essences of different things. Things like pencil sharpening and baby lotion. And they were just in a pot and we'd give them to people and people never ever said, oh yeah, those are pencil shavings. They'd start talking about primary school, they'd start talking about a teacher. You know, it, they never went, mm. yeah, yeah, that's baby lotion. They'd start talking about mums, and it, it was very, very interesting. That, yeah, that it's really interesting, because, I mean, that sort of slightly bears out what, you know, what I was saying, I think we're both saying the same thing, which is that something about smells, as you say, this instant access to the back of the brain contains within it a kind of, I'm not sure whether it's a collapsed or an exploded grasp of time yeah because i mean i'm trying to write something at the moment which is you know poor sophie was in in the stairs on the way up was subjected to my moaning about this article that's not going the right way and part of what i'm trying to write about is meeting this friend again after a gap of 32 years and you know seeing him and having to outside bath railway station having to do a little bit of work to recognize him but not very much he was essentially the same build and height nonetheless there was a difference and it was it was clearly obvious I mean, I was even conscious of what I was filtering out and adding, you yeah. know, in order to arrive at the picture of, of this school friend. But the thing that really hit me that I didn't even realise I remembered, and, I, and there's a sort of internal contradiction in that, was his smell, mm. which is actually a pleasant smell. It's a sort of clean smell. And it just, it, it took me back to swimming with him in Bath Sports and Leisure Centre, you know, where we used to go every Sunday with a group of friends. Mm. And I hadn't anticipated this sort of Proustian moment, you know, yeah. in which you sort of fall back into the past. And I've been thinking about that ever since because it seemed to me that I was both gaining access to the specific and from it extrapolating. In other words, doing it slightly different way around, actually, to the to the representation that Conway and Plato Pierce. I, I went to the specific. I mean, perhaps I was cued into it. But I then, from the specific, elaborated a much more general story yeah. about Simon, which I had to do because I had 32 years of blank yeah. to fill in. Yeah. Um. 
and maybe the flip side of us not being very detailed in how we process smell is I think when we when we do deal with smell it's almost entirely through recognition yeah rather than calling to mind and memory I can so I can think of a tune in my head it's very hard for me to think of a smell in my head yeah I'm sure some people can I can't and it's so always when I, attached to it's a, yeah something yeah. else I'm thinking of the yeah, thing yeah. rather than yeah, the, yeah. the smell itself and whereas I can think of a tune without imagining the band yeah. you know and I think this is like the flip side of this kind of re- the, the very stunning effect it can have in memory in that you can only recreate it if the thing or the person is there. Yeah. I kept for years a jar of country-born setting gel. <laughs> <laughs> Which I believe to be apposites for the name of our podcast. It was when, um, you know, when I was... <laughs> I think Tom threw it away in the end. I can't find it. But I kept it just to smell it. Because yeah. it smelt like being 14 and getting ready to go out. Yeah. And nothing else yeah. makes me feel like I'm 14 and getting ready to go out other than the, yeah. just occasionally these kind of crazy smells. And it's actually cosmetic pro- products which quite often don't change their smells all that much because they want you to somehow yes. that link with yeah. it. They can be incredibly strong drivers of it. Yeah. You know, certain lipsticks still have the same smell. It's very, very powerful and immediate and there's no other real way of accessing it. I can read my diary from that time and I don't get that rush. Of recognition. In fact, my diary from that time frequently reads like it's been written by yeah, a complete stranger, which it was written by a stranger. Fourteen-year-old yeah. me was a completely different human, you know. But I actually love this kind of connection also to the music of the time because I think that's very—it's it's very interesting. You say you can. If you think very hard, you can come up with a tune. Mm. Not one that's known, but I guess what you're saying is you can come up with a, I get it a, in my a head. tune. Yeah, yeah. But you can't do that with a smell. Uh, I mean, there may well be people who can, but it's, I think it seems to be a lot less common for people. Imagery for humans tends to be more auditory or visual. You see, music is, music is a really interesting one. Again, it's one of those things that sort of people talk about very metaphorically and they start using mm. words and language to describe it. But, yeah. but really... Music is very imperfectly understood, it seems to me, because it's not really that. All the things we bring in to describe, you know, pitch and volume are all... They're all spatial metaphors, really. You know, up, down, high, low. Yeah. They're not really in the sound. But I think the fact that you can... I'm just trying to think about why it is that you can... Why it is that you can come up with this abstract... Is it an abstraction? Because obviously music is a sort of... It does relate to sound and pitch. So in that sense, it's it's related to what we hear all the time in the yeah. world. It's just already organised in a way, isn't it? We did a study a couple of years ago where we were trying to look at people... Just variation in how good... Because people do vary with auditory imagery, how good they are at calling to mind something. I mean, um, I have a colleague who's worked with someone whose auditory imagery is so profound, he has to check if he's got headphones in. Yeah. Because he can't tell if he's listening to music or if he's imagining it. It's, it's, it's the same yeah. to him. Yeah. And what we found is that people... If you have like a, you know, a chunky group of, like, say, 100 people and you just scan their brains, it's a structural study, so we're not looking at the brain working, we're just saying which brain areas are bigger in people who've got stronger auditory imagery. And interestingly, it's not something you, it doesn't have a different, doesn't have an effect in auditory cortex. It's mm-hmm. having its effect in something called the supplementary motor area, which is a very, very important area for controlling and planning action. 
And if you look at the brain imaging studies when people are doing auditory imagery, you get that same region recruited. Mm. Mm. So it seems that when you are calling it to mind, you are kind of implementing making it rather than accessing the sound directly. There's some evidence that may also work for aspects of visual imagery as well. you kind of imagining the movement. Yeah, that's fascinating. Because funny enough, I was both listening to and reading, you know, the, the jazz composer and improviser Keith Jarrett, not a new romantic, but, you know, let's recruit him, why not? Why not? It's a broad church. <laughs> He'd be horrified. He, well, funny, it was the 80s, because at the end of the 80s, he started doing some recordings of Bach and the uh, uh, 48 Praises and Fugues and Goldberg Variations and things, and he, one of the things he said was that he always, he always felt that a lot of other composers, a lot of other interpreters of it, always brought too much of themselves to it. That, he liked the fact that the music already seemed to be expressive of itself and therefore all you had to do was sort of bear witness to it and that the trick to really understanding the music was to treat it as something that was either abstract or performed. Yeah. In other words, either actual yeah. and implemented or not... Mm. And to treat both the same, because the relationship between sound and idea was so close in Baroque music. And I think that's very true. It is, and I think it picks up on an important point about... I mean, certainly when I talk about music, frequently what I mean is recordings. I mean, particular recordings from a time and a place of a song by a band. And I don't mean... It could be performed by anybody or I have a... And, of course, that is relatively recent that we've been able to do that. You know, humans have been making music since there's been humans. And for most of the time, that was live. Yeah. And sort of for my grandparents' generation, sheet music was the thing. And you you bought the song and then it was a performance you actually engaged with. So I think it is very important to bear that performative aspect in mind because we can... Certainly from my discipline, we can get caught up on the fact that actually what we're, what we're describing is someone's reaction to a recording, rather than... Yeah, I thing. think that's true. And actually, that's part... And funny you should say that, because that was one of my kind of questions about this this fascinating, you know, article, is that, let's see, there's there's a thing here where um, they say... Yeah, so we've got... We're talking about sort of... For example, participant who listed an activity such as talking to Zed as a detail of a memory, would be asked to recall this conversation. Overall, participants were able to do this for approximately 30% of the details listed to several memories, but there was very marked variation, and some memories led to the recall of many additional event-specific knowledge details, whereas for others, few or no additional details were available. This variability is what might be expected, da-da-da-da-da. And what that seems to me to be is, that's a sort of direct... It's analogous to this business of the recording and actual invented music because it's it's saying if you say there's something recalled, then however instantaneous it is, you also have to build in to your picture of this what it is you say you remember. Yeah. You know, so the discrete thing recalled then has to be given to the researcher in some constructed form. Mm. And I don't know how you get round that. Yes. 
Yeah, we're relying on verbal reports. Yeah, for all of this, which is why. Yeah, maybe. maybe it's, yeah. No, no, no. It's because really, it, it's the same with the music. It's very can't actually access the imagery people have. Yeah, we rely on them telling us, and yeah. it's a beautiful thing about psychology that we're still using this. But it's also it, it, if people can't put something into words, if there's something about that event that it would be hard for them to articulate, then it will not form part of the memory that they're telling you about. Yeah. We're skewing it towards a verbal bias by by how we do it, because yeah. there is there is no other way. This is to this is to make it much more kind of theatrical, but picking up on that and what we were sort of saying about you know what pre-verbal language is it you use to see an image as an image yeah. is there some way that you could do it in terms of sort of behaviors where you ask people to replicate a situation <laughs> if it's too dramatic yeah. you don't want to, be too. <laughs> you need you don't to see, want to be that. Too, see yeah. that but you know something a bit more functional in other words get them literally to act out something and then see whether they think they've been making it up yeah. or not. I mean, it, it feels like you're just describing art to me when you say that. Yeah. Kind of, yeah let's, let's stop doing it objectively and just try and access it some other way. Well, I, think you're right. um, yeah, I probably am. But it's... I mean, it is interesting that if you are in a situation where you're trying to get the truth of a memory out of somebody... So, for example, you're not a scientist at all, but you're a police officer. Yeah. They are now incredibly careful about how... They use something called the cognitive interview... Because we now know from the work of people like Martin Conway that actually exactly how you ask somebody about an event will shape both mm. what they recall and, of mm. course, because that recall event is another event, Yeah, yeah. it then can get incorporated into the memory and change mm. what the memory is. Because, of course, the, the other thing that's true for this yeah. is yes. that it could all be not it's true. A, it's a dynamic interaction. And, it's, yeah. and it affects the thing itself. So one, one of the things that I find intriguing about autobiographical memory and I think it picks up on the the poem that you sent me in a weird way is that it can be completely untrue I think probably everybody's had the experience of a memory that turns out to be a story you were told and you've incorporated it or even Charles Ponyhoe's got a very good section on this in his book on memory that I think called shared memories pieces of light yeah yeah. yeah. and he he, um he points out most common with twins but you still get it with siblings where two people recall the same event yeah. to, and they both think it happened to them Yeah, yeah. and I have one with my sister mm. one of us said something really witty at a family party like obviously it was me <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. can be no question about it but my father was terribly impressed by the thing and in fact that the reason I think it was really like it, it wasn't just that a witty thing was said but my father was using it to wind up a family member. Yeah, you see, what I did—it's—it's it's, it's so interesting that is because I because that's a situation where the point of view, our point of view, is actually becoming background or encountering yeah. the background. Because what you're doing is you're saying this very powerful thing happened. I have a point of view, yeah, which may be true or false, but the, actually the main thing is that you're acknowledging that other people were there too, yeah, and that therefore that means there were other sets of consciousness there, and that somehow you've got to bring those two things together. Mm. And if your brain is kind of processing or encountering the problem of one's personhood 
and the personhood of other people in a kind of emotional resonant situation, I think it just seems to me to be very obvious that sometimes you'll get it wrong. Yeah. And that there will be some sort of attribution going on, a sharing, you know. It's, I mean, that it just pro- almost statistically, yes. that seems to me to be likely. Absolutely, given the, the shifting ground of what the original memory could be. It's not some, yeah. as they're saying here, it's not, it is, it is more variable. It's more suggestible. And the only thing, Fanny Ho points this out, the only thing that is always true of shared memories is that they are always good. Yeah, they always make yeah. you look better. So yeah. no one's ever going, no, 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 it was me that was gone for shoplifting. <laughs> unless that's something that would be perceived yeah. as having some you know advance you know like yeah. a good thing so i think there's a there is as much that's true about memory that is what you would like to be true mm. Mm. what you want your desire mm. as there is you know the actual stuff that happened well desire wanting stuff is actually about lacking something you're replacing Interestingly, shall we? That takes us on to. I think so. So that, I mean, to, we haven't discussed this. this. We haven't discussed the um, homework we're setting each other. Thank you for your homework. I am so ill-informed about Shakespeare. So this is a, a monologue from Shakespeare from Henry the Fourth, Part Two. It's in a prologue. It's the prologue. It's rumours speech. So without rehearsing the whole the plot of Henry the Fourth and Part One and Part Two. There's been a fight at Shrewsbury, and you know Henry the Fourth has sort of you know put down the rebels, but it's not it's not the end of the kind of wars. Henry's son, Prince Hal, has been hobnobbing with Falstaff and reprobates in the East Cheap Tavern, but he's coming good, and has been part of the battle. He's coming back on side, as it were, with the you know with the power base, and Henry the Fourth Part Two is the story of Falstaff's. The emotional part of it really is is Hal's accession to kingship and the death of Henry the Fourth and the ostracization, the rejection of Hal's former friend Falstaff. You know he he's he's no longer part of the court. He's no longer welcome there, and that's very moving. That happens later on in the play, but this is about a specific little political thing, mm-hmm. which is saying that things have happened that haven't actually happened in order to you know, get a march on your enemies. And rumour, specifically, it's this idea that Hotspur, the son of Northumberland, one of the rebels in in part one, wasn't killed at Shrewsbury. Well, actually, you know, he was. And why do you do this in war? Why do you lie? You lie for advantage, you know, to put people off their stroke to think they've got the upper hand when they haven't. It's also a personification, and it's this comes from medieval drama, really, from the morality play. So they crop up now and then in Shakespeare plays, and they are a hangover from an earlier drama. And I think they're very beautifully managed in mm. Shakespeare plays. So rumour here is he comes on as a sort of you know medieval morality characterization, a personification. He's painted with tongues. What He's does false. that mean? Painted with tongues, literally a coat. Right. Painted with tongues, he's got sort of you know he's got a sort of cloak on with with gossipy tongues all over right. it, and so he represents false report. Right, and there would have been a sort of you know an obvious attachment to bearing false witness in the medieval morality play, but here it's false report in, in war for political advantage. It's become part of politics. 
what's interesting about it is it's and the relationship to what we've been discussing is this idea of false recognition of mm. the past and whether it's a mistake or whether it's a deliberate act to rewrite history to construct a version of events to your advantage and whether you know you're doing that or not so some of it's deliberate and some of it's inadvertent yeah. and right at the end he, I'm not going to read the whole thing but he does a sort of rehearsal of the whole part one and then he says rumour is a pipe blown by surmises jealousies conjectures and of so easy and so plain a stop that the blunt monster with uncounted heads the still discordant wavering multitude can play upon it but what need I thus my well-known body to anatomize among my household why is rumour here I run before King Harry's victory who in a bloody field by Shrewsbury hath beaten down young Hotspur and his troops quenching the flame of bold rebellion even with the rebel's blood but what mean I to speak so true at first my office is to noise abroad that Harry Monmouth fell under the wrath of noble Hotspur's sword and that the king before the Douglas's rage stooped his anointed head as low as death so he's he's noticeable basically that you know the prince Hal was killed by Hotspur and the king Henry V was killed by Douglas this have I rumoured through the peasant towns between that royal field of Shrewsbury and this worm-eaten hold of ragged stone where Hotspur's father, old Northumberland, lies crafty sick. The posts come tiring on, and not a man of them brings other news than they have learnt of me. From rumours' tongues they bring smooth comforts false, worse than true wrongs. Bloody marvellous, isn't yeah. it? It's just... It's so dense, typically yeah. when you find you have to kind of explain what... Everyone thinks they sort of know Shakespeare and what he's saying, but actually it's really dense. Yeah. All his speeches are like bits of event-specific, not they have to be unpacked. Yeah. And they're so concentrated. What's telling about this, I think, is that he talks about, you know, all the kind of gossip he spread aboard about false gossip about you know king henry dying and and how being killed by hotspur and so on and he does it he's saying you'll understand what i'm about because you're a theater audience yeah and the theater is not just where you come to see a sort of convenient fiction it's where you come to gossip that's what you do in a theater you rabbit and at a general level if you like the general knowledge level this room is full of people forming a picture of events that doesn't have very much factual basis yeah. to it. <laughs> uh, and it's quite a sort of... A lot of Shakespeare is quite... I hate the word radical, but it's quite a radical thing to say because mm. it's saying the things you think are true that you take absolutely as gospel probably are based on very little. Yeah. They're based on your interaction and they're based upon other people confirming your report. Mm. They're not, you know, the, the actual basis is often very, and it was very hard to get at, you know. Yeah. What, are your, what are your reports from court? What, where, where do they come from yeah. in this world? They're all reports. And propaganda is extremely important to the survival of essentially an autocratic regime. Yeah. So that's what this is about, I think.
I found it. It's not a play I know, and it's not a speech I know, but it it was interesting to me. I mean, the density. I I'm struggling with some of it, but the idea that you've got these smooth comforts. They're false and they're worse than the yeah. two wrongs. Yeah. We're so susceptible as humans to things we want to believe, even if you kind of know they can't be. One of the reasons we are terrible at spotting liars, all studies, even people who are good or would think you'd think we're in positions where they should be good at spotting liars, people can't do it with a chance. Mm-hmm. And that's as likely as not because our starting assumption is people are not lying to us. And on the whole, we want to believe they're not lying to us mm. and we want to believe what they're saying is true. Mm. And even if you're in it, you know, I've been in situations where I've been presented with a situation where I know half the people are lying to me, an experiment. I'm describing an experiment, not my life. I've still been so caught up in the minute by any one thing someone said. Oh, they couldn't have made that up. No, that must be true. And it's, it's incredibly powerful. And it sits alongside the, the other point that you pick up on, which is that we do gossip. Gossip is always put down as a bad thing and somehow dismissed as being a poor use of all human resources but all the evidence suggests that probably the reason why we can talk at all is because (laughs) so that we can gossip you know we are social primates and who we get to spend time with who will spend time with us who will get to talk to us who we will let talk to us that is one of the most important things in our environment and one of the best ways of knowing that you are involved and part of a network is that people will share gossip mm. with you mm. and so it's, it's meaning is actually incredibly profound to us as primates so there's two things there isn't it on the one hand sort of gossip as a sort of benign thing that allows for you know the basis of communication socialization mm. and the other is this willingness the presumptive truth of what people say i wonder if there's something in there about you know why people go mad under totalitarian regimes where you can't speak Mm. because you're worried about what people will report yeah and you also know that their report will not be truthful yes and that awful sense of if no one will believe you yeah but also if you were part of the accepted network they probably would yeah you know, it's yeah, the yeah. danger of being not part of a network yeah, is that yeah. you won't be believed. So language then becomes a, you know, its truth basis is, mm. is shot. And I think that presumably makes people very angry. And, and you know, it, it has a direct behavioural I mean, consequence. I, because you can't use your, your primary socialisation tool yeah. as something, as you would normally. The best example I can think of is a few years ago... And speak very generally, uh, a UK scientist said some things that probably were intended to be funny in a foreign country and they were taken very badly at the time. And back in the UK, everyone just split into people that know him and were going, oh, he's just, oh no, he's never meant a bad thing, no, no, he's lovely. People are going, no, well, he's fed factually, he was hateful <laughs> and this mm-hmm. is awful. Mm-hmm. And it really kind of taught... I had colleagues who wouldn't talk to me for a while because, of, you know, the, if you fell on the wrong side of it from their perspective. But I thought it was a very good example of how if you were part of that network, you really couldn't see what was wrong. It was just him being him. Mm. And if you're outside of it, you think, this is terrible. Somebody's being terribly mm. rude to our, you know, these, these, these perfectly well-meant people not from the UK. And also and, comedy is tribal. Uh, well, exactly. I mean, and it really... So if you choose to interpret somebody's behaviour as being aggressive... 
your words will allow you that flexibility. Yeah. So people getting upset because somebody described, you know, call off the dogs. It was just a completely well understood phrase, I thought, part of English. But you thought, how are you calling yeah, a dog? Yeah. That's what a low, yeah. low slur. And that's entirely what you're basically re-describing is I, I, I disagree with you and I'm going to use your words back at you to show how you couldn't, you, you meant to be offensive, mm. even though mm. it's entirely possible that you weren't. Because ca- humans care about intention yeah as much as or perceived intention as much as the sort of the bald fact of what's actually done then you always have this possibility for ambiguity and it's never objectively assessed you're always incorporating your well intention is not really not not intentionality but intention is not really retrievable Mm. that's the problem yeah it's you can only really judge it behavioristically and that's the difficulty because it's actually ipso facto internal personal you know subjective and it and, and there's a mismatch yeah. then between the effect, the word used in the speech, yeah. and, and what it might have meant. Well, thank you very much, Will. Well, thank you, Sophie. That was really good fun. If you are on social media, I think Will and I were both very early adopters, hence our names simply are our Twitter handles. So I'm <laughs> Sophie Scott on Twitter. Uh, and I'm Will Eaves. And Will, unlike me, actually is a published author whose works can be found in bookshops around the land mm, well if you look really hard <laughs> <laughs> or you can get them from the redoubtable cbeditions.com thank you very much we've been the new romantics mm.